This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 168. We're recording on Thursday, July 28th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Well, it's, it's the calm before the biggest book release of the year. Mm-hmm. This We're going to talk about it in a minute. Um, but it's for a pretty slow, you know, this a slow part of the summer. It's, it, it's weird to get the biggest book of the year, like basically August 1st, you know, July 30, yep. midnight, July 31st, August 1st. It's a little strange to have it this time of year. And the only, weirdly, the only um, uh, antecedent I can think of was last year when we got Ghost of a Watchman in Gray in mid-July. Um, so if you're going to be the biggest book release of the year, you're one of these really sort of extraordinary uh, out of the ordinary yeah, book you know, The new Harry Potter books were usually in the summer, though. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think they so, do that with the big kids' titles. I guess it would make sense. The kids have time to to do it. And, I feel uh, like a, a new Dan Brown really should always be released on, like, July 3rd. You mm-hmm. know, <laughs> like, buy this, go on vacation. Yeah, I guess so. It just feels like if you're going to have a big vacation book, you want them out at the end of May so that you can have it for the whole season, people getting out of school, starting their traveling. Uh, anyway, uh, interesting to see. And I, and I don't know enough about – I'm sure that someone's written a long profile about – or a pro- profile, a study, or maybe they haven't because publishing. Um, like it does, does time of year that your book is released have anything to do with how much it sells? Like anything at all? Because they release a bunch of books in the fall, they do a summer, there's a big one. And then, you know, there's like a mini bump right after Christmas, early January. But does it matter? Like, yeah, honestly, does it matter? I I would love to know. And I would love to see somebody do like this stupid, complex statistics mm-hmm. on it um, to figure money out ball like for book publishing. I've wanted this forever. Yeah. And to yeah, Moneyball for book. Yes, exactly. Um, to figure out like what is just the feedback loop and what is actually an effect of the time of year that a book is published? Because that bump right after Christmas is relatively recent, like with the rise yeah. of gift cards in the last well, that's just what we think, right? decade that's just, or so. That's like that was, yeah, that's sort of like received yeah. wisdom that has come down was like, well, big titles used to never get published in January, but now publishers are doing that with some of their big books of the year. And, um, just sort of traditionally the big, big titles of the year have always been October, November, which is like the publishing equivalent of Oscar season. But how much of that is like, just because we think the big books of the year come out in the fall and those are the books that publishers put a lot of money behind. So those are the books that are more likely to sell and how much of it is really an effect of the time of the year. I don't even know if they could tangle, untangle that. It's so like the feedback loop has been going for so long. Yeah, yeah. Um, It is an interesting question though. Anyway, so the questions we'll never know the answer to unless um, we get to run Bookspan or something. I don't know how we'd have to figure this out. Let's do our first sponsor this week. I'm excited about this sponsor. I read this book. I sold this sponsorship myself. I reached out because I really wanted them to do an ad spot. <laughs> so full disclosure, um, this book I found out because it was long listed for the – oh, I can't remember now. Pulitzer, yeah, it was a, a long list. As a, I'm mixing my um, – it was a finalist. I'm mixing my prizes. No long. It's the finalist for the Pulitzer Prize this year. It's Maud's Line uh, by Margaret Verbal. 
and it's it it, touch, it it touches a lot of my you know most favorite interesting literary fiction um, places you know the, the places Your I'm most book interested. nerves yeah my book nerves like going back a long way so it's set in eastern Oklahoma in 1928 uh, Maud the titular Maud uh, Nail lives in an allotment parceled out by the U.S. government to the Cherokees. Um, she, you know, her days are filled with hard work and simple pleasures, but also the violence that goes along with, you know, um, living on uh, a reservation. Um, she, her, pro, you know, it's, it's this is kind of her life. She's going to be a farmer, but then uh, a book peddler comes into town, and kind of they start a little bit of a romance, um, and she's got a lot of hard choices to make. Her her lot in life is very difficult. She doesn't have a lot of mobility options. She doesn't have, you know, education necessarily. She doesn't have a lot of job prospects. It's very difficult for a move. She's enmeshed in the, the community there. And so it has some of the it has some of the things that can make for an interesting romance where, you know, the heart is moving in one direction, but there's so much that's keeping things, you know, the, the obstacles are real and meaningful. Um, it has a lot, you know, it shel- it sits on the same shelf with Erdrich or Jim Harrison, you know, people who do the American West, which also is a genre I love. She's an interesting, strong protagonist um, that, you know, is trying to, it has an interesting inner life and is also dealing with really the, the realities of what it's like to live um, in that part of Oklahoma, in that community in the 20s. Um, also interesting, the author, uh, Margaret Verbal, she's a member of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. And this book is set on her family's land there. So this is an own voice. You know, if you follow the own voices mm-hmm. story, this is an own voices situation. Um, it's a really beautiful book. I'm so glad it was on the Pulitzer finalist list, if only because I got to discover it. Um, so re- really beautiful book. I, I really can highly recommend it myself outside of uh, the, the spot here. Um, go check it out. It's not too long. You know, it's a nice, it's a nice tight 300 pages. Um, starts out, it starts out, it's, it starts out kind of surprisingly, um, which you'll find if you, if you check it out. Um, so that's Maud's line by Margaret Verbal. Thanks to them for uh, coming on and sponsoring the show and doing my bidding. I really appreciate that. <laughs> Always nice. Always nice. All right. So the, the big story is, uh, that the Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is coming out this this weekend, mm-hmm. I've got mine pre-ordered. It's good. Did you see this thing where in some places Amazon will deliver it to you between midnight and 2 a.m.? Yes. Did you see that? Well, that the, are we bonkers? What is going on? Is that a thing? That it's, seems crazy it's to me. It's the midnight release party for the people who are too old or lazy to go to a midnight release yeah, party. Yeah, or maybe maybe you don't have transportation or they don't live close to one or you're yeah. disabled. Like There's a lot of reasons you could do it, but I think that... That's really remarkable. And, I, you know, and poor delivery people. I feel so bad for Yeah, them. I think poor delivery people, but also really smart on Amazon's part, because this is one of those things where avoiding spoilers online is going to become yep. very difficult very quickly. Because it's not going to take long to read. It's a stage play. I mean, it's, you're going to blow through that thing. Yeah. Uh, and people are going to start talking about it and then inevitably arguing about what constitutes a spoiler and what doesn't constitute yep. a spoiler. But if you want to read the thing and you're not going to a midnight release party for whatever reason, you're not going. Uh, if you want it quickly and you don't want to be spoiled and you want to be in on the fun of talking about the brand new thing, then uh, yep. that like midnight to 2 a.m. delivery. Uh, it's you, smart. You, you tell me, I was thinking about this this week too, and I, I'm too ignorant to, to know the answer myself, but you've been a bookseller and maybe you can answer why, why can't they just have it be 8 a.m. 
the, the, the next day? Like, why do they have to do it's I, fun? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's fun, question mark. Yeah. Uh, yes, is my understanding. I think it also feeds the frenzy a little bit. Like, when there would be a new Dan Brown book, that would be a big deal. And I was a bookseller for one new Dan Brown book. Mm. For, um, and it was admittedly the sad one. It was when The Lost Symbol came out. But right. we didn't know that it was the, like... No, you didn't know. Yeah. You don't know. Uh, and people would be, like at the stores, you know, front windows with their faces pressed against the glass at opening time, but it would be like seven adults, you know, at 9am waiting to get their new Dan Brown book. And I think for kids, for kids, like franchise titles, and for the fun of like the scare quotes, fun of going to a party at midnight, it just mm. makes it just makes a better story, you know, like, yeah, bring your kid at 9am is just not nearly as exciting as like come to a party and it's at midnight and we'll have games and you can get your book immediately and then everybody can rush home. And um, I don't think I was a bookseller during a Harry Potter, like big release, or at least one that we did parties for. But I was a bookseller for the final two Twilight books. Were those and midnight releases? Those were midnight releases, too. And it actually was really fun, like seeing kids run around and be so excited to get a new book. Um, and Oh, I, I'm trying not to be um, uh, Scrooge McDuck about it. I'm honestly, I just didn't know <laughs> yeah. like if that was. I think it's just it's marketing. It would be yeah. my best guess as like, don't even you don't even have to wait you know, eight hours to get it. You can get it the minute that it's technically available for sale. How much is it competition with other bookstores? Because it's a, it's a, it's a same day lay down. Right. Mm -hmm. And so basically it's saying do not sell until July 31st. And you want to be able, basically if you're the Barnes and Noble and there's another Barnes and Noble 20 minutes away or a bookstore 20 minutes Mm -hmm. away, you want to be able to say you can get it as soon as you possibly can and our agreement with with Scholastic is that is twelve oh one on July. Is that part of it too? Is like probably there's just demand. Yeah, to get it I the would moment guess. it comes out. And I think the if any of our listeners know differently, I would love to hear the stories. I think the Harry Potter books were the ones that gave birth to these midnight release parties. Mm. And I would just guess, like this is wild speculation, but I would guess that that probably came about from someone being wily enough to be like, okay, we can't sell it until July 31st. So we're going to sell it first thing on July 31st and be the first ones and try to get that like very rabid portion of the fan base. That would Um, be an interesting post or article or even a book of like history of literary crazes where like basically the demand for a book necessitated extraordinary circumstances like a midnight release party. Cause there's these stories and I actually, I I don't know how much they're, I've read them, but I haven't read primary sources about basically like people waiting on the docks in New York Mm. for um, like the next installment of a Dickens serialized novels to come out. Oh, wow. Like So they were getting shipped over from England. Again, Mm -hmm. this is now third hand, but also 20 years old. So the data rod in my brain is (laughs) real here. But like some story like that where like there was this is not a new phenomenon in terms of people being. Uh, excited to get their hands on the next installment or a book as soon as they can. Um, but I just don't know that midnight release parties are uh, a midnight release. It'd be interesting to know if was this a Harry Potter thing or like what were the other books where I don't know if there were like special thing. Like, yeah, basically like the, the, the cycle was broken. Like the, the normal, the normal distribution mm-hmm. 
timeline or, or structure was broken because of demand. Like or- thinking about my own childhood, if somebody had done a midnight release party for like the new babysitters club book mm. and there had been things where you could like make little games to put in your kit that you took when you went babysitting, I would have been there. Um, it just takes How often a- did those come out? I don't even remember. Like I, because I bought them in, you know, like chunks and box sets from scholastic book uh, fair things at school usually. But there were there were a ton of them. Like I think when I aged out of reading Babysitters Club, there were more than a hundred. Um, mm, so wow. I have yeah, I have no idea how frequently they came up. But those were like the hallmark thing of my reading childhood, and I would have totally tried to talk my parents into taking me to a midnight release party if anybody had thought to have one. Yeah, I don't know that I. I think we've told I've told this story. Maybe I did on the my episode of my own reading lives where. The only time I ever like got to this bookstore as soon as I could was for when Paradise came out um, mm. in 98, 99. I was there at 8 a.m. at Barnes & Noble in Kansas City um, waiting for that uh, to get it. I was out of school because I think it was over a Christmas release or a holiday mm. release. Um, but anyway, that's the only time I've ever done that. But yeah, as a kid, I, I don't know. Wasn't I didn't really read serial fiction that much. So like, but I would read like Hitchhiker's Guide and the s- series that were over. I should have mm. stuck. I should have developed O'Neill's Razor. Then it would have saved me a lot of. It pain. was in effect. You just didn't know it. I just didn't know it. Yeah, yeah. It was a, a natural law. I just didn't know it to be. Um, so anything. I mean, I guess it's a, so. The link we have in the show for the notes is it's the Barnes and Noble's most pre-ordered title since Deathly Hallows. And I was trying to decide if I'm surprised by that or not. I guess I'm not. Yeah, I mean, I guess it it that means that it beat uh, Ghost of a Watchman. Yeah. It beat Gray. It or beat, any of the any of the subsequent um, right Hunger Games ones. Um, that's surprising. It beat Mockingjay. When Mockingjay came out, 2010. Yeah. I'm surprised. I guess I'm surprised. Well, yeah. Well, Mockingjay, I'm pretty confident it was after 2007, but I don't remember how far after. But yeah, it's I don't mm. I don't think I'm surprised because the longer that Harry Potter exists, just the more the fan base for it grows. Like we're in, you know, the kids who were actual kids when Harry Potter started are like in college now. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in college when it started and read it and there are people who are like my parents age that were reading it when it was live and so you have like legitimate multiple generations of harry potter fans now and it's just this iterative thing that like every time there's a harry potter book there's a larger fan base to sell the new thing to because it's it's still roll like the ball is still rolling i think of new you know new kid readers discovering harry potter because now their parents or their grandparents or their aunts and uncles or their teachers are reading it to them and i mean and it doesn't say like how it compares directly to deathly hallows for example like if what what percentage I, i would assume it's not as big as deathly hallows but i could be wrong about that Mm. i I suppose i wonder how many people uh, the the knowledge percolation out there about what it actually is like how many people are going to get them like this is a freaking play like you know (laughs) it's going to be some people right yes you know i mean uh i think melissa uh who uh listens a listener of the show long time Mm -hmm. listener was tweeting she's a bookseller to in iowa don't be creepy but that people are coming in asking for Harry Potter eight, mm-hmm. like they're coming in and who knows what they know and what they don't know. So I'm, I'm curious to see, 
um, about that. Yeah, um, it's when we were um, in Chicago for BEA in May, I was up in Evanston for a day and my husband and I were walking around and there's a giant Barnes and Noble there that we frequented when we were in college and we were across the street from it and there was a big, like, huge mm-hmm. poster with a Harry Potter thing in the window. And like, I have known about the Cursed Child since they said it was going to be a thing. But the artwork on this poster and the way that it was all branded looked different. And I was like, we have to go in Barnes and Noble and find out what this new Harry Potter thing is. <laughs> and of course, when we like walked up up and looked at it, it was like, oh, right, it's the play yeah. that we've been talking about. But I, I do wonder slash suspect um, how many people are going to get the play this weekend and be surprised slash disappointed. And maybe they won't be disappointed. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't really know, but I, I do wonder um, what people do and don't know. Um, also, yesterday, I think the review reviews for A Cursed Child, the play were embargoed. Um, mm-hmm. Until yesterday, and those started coming out yesterday. Well, and the, I, the show's been open for a few weeks, but they didn't want reviews to come out. Well, that- so let's, they're in previews, and there's mm. like, this weird the theater the theater review ecosystem is odd, and I don't quite understand it myself. But there's sort of a gentlewoman's agreement that for the first few weeks, until you're technically out of previews, the uh, show's done or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is curious. It's like writing a review of a galley. Yeah, I, I guess so. But plays change way more than a galley does between – by the time it's a galley, like they're yeah, not moving chapters around and recasting roles and stuff like that. But um, And the, the notices have been good as far as I can tell. I've only done like the first paragraph and last three sentence reading because I don't <laughs> want to do spoilers. But as far as I can tell, people seem to like um, the play. I've heard rumblings amongst our own contributor core – that we're anticipating some turmoil about the actual plot. Ah. So I, and I'm, turmoil might be strong, but I think there's going to be some discussion about what it is that actually happens um, in the play, uh, in the, yeah, in the play, in the book, in mm-hmm. the whatever, the story, the story. Jeez, I, even I'm getting myself confused about. <laughs> you know, it is interesting too, and it's funny you mentioned the artwork because I think about that, like, you know, the, at least the US editions of the Harry Potter series all has that same illustration mm-hmm. it's the same artist and it's if there's figures you know it's figurative painting it's usually harry on a broom or whatever and the cursed child one is this very it's this more abstract well it's not abstract you can tell what it is but it's like a nest with a couple eggs in it but it's very like it's like representational like, yeah it's like, it looks more like street art or something like that mm-hmm. um so that there's sort of a visual break but i don't know that anyone you could expect anyone to say well i guess it must be a play because look that's a nest i mean that's <laughs> that's not going to happen i'm um, i don't think that's how the logic goes <laughs> yeah unless there's some meaning to nest that i'm i'm not privy to um, yeah i'm i'll be really interested in just following sort of you know normal reader experience yeah. of it online um because reading plays like that's a, it's a different skill set and it feels different than reading narrative fiction does and also i think a lot of readers either had negative experiences with it in school or you just have less you just have less practice reading right. a play um, than you have reading narrative fiction and it's a, it can be a less comfortable experience and i wonder how much that lack of like familiarity with doing that thing with that particular yeah. kind of reading will play into the response to it it'll be really interesting and the other thing too that's that will be different um and i and I think we, some people on Book Ride have written about this, maybe not directly, but as part of their, you know, Harry Potter r- fandom and and good feeling is there's something about reading a Harry Potter novel too. They're long, mm-hmm. and there's like you get wrapped up in it, and that's sort of part of the experience. And I wonder, as a play, 
you know, how that will, I mean, it just will, it, you won't be able to read it. You're not going to take seven hours to read it. You know, it's probably take as about as long to read as it takes to perform probably even a little bit shorter because you can read faster than people can speak. Um, so it might be, a, it's going to be a couple hours reading experience for most people. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, Deathly Hollows was 10,000 pages long. I mean, basically after book th- four, four, book four and on are like four to 700 pages. Um, and that's a different kind of reading experience. It's not better or worse necessarily, but I do think some of what we've come to know as the, re- the experience of reading a Harry Potter book is about being, enveloped for a you know yeah, multiple hour like a long time there's something days. yeah there's something to like i went to the bookstore first thing on friday morning and then i just got on the couch and yeah laid down with this harry potter book and read yeah. it and took a nap and then woke up and read some more and i just read yeah, all weekend until definitely. i finished it there's that sort of like marathon reading experience i think you're, you're gonna be if you get up at eight you'll be done by 10 yeah like that's yeah. it's it is different um that means like the next day on the internet after the cursed child there's gonna be people who have already read the play like 10 times you know mm. and have dissected it and that will and be written really, about it in you right. know like, their own Tumblr, yeah, you know, like, you know be, it's going to go. It's it'll, gonna be, it'll move a little bit faster. I think that'll be really interesting in its own right. But yeah, the whole experience is is going, this is going to be a different experience. Mm-hmm. And um, for like the diehard Harry Potter fandom, I'm really curious and interested in how that different is going to play out and how they feel about the whole thing. Like it could be different and great. It could be different and mm-hmm. disappointing. It could just be different and, you know, sort of value neutral. Um, right. But I'm, I'm really interested. I'm, I loved the Harry Potter books, but like, I haven't pre-ordered my copy of this yet. <laughs> I would. I mean, I would assume you're going to be able. To, uh, is it going to be really the case that if you didn't pre-order one, you go out? The no, there's always. It, there's going to be. There's going to be. You're going to find be able yeah. to find a copy. I think I'm going to read it on whatever day that the 31st is. I'll probably sit down and read it that night. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what's about. I have to say, I'm more interested in it. And maybe this is where my brain is, and the job, and the company, and the show, and the site, and whatever. Yeah. But I'm sort of more interested as a phenomenon now than as sort of a you know, as a reader of this. Yeah, there's sort of a level of remove from the experience of it. And Amanda and I think talked about on a previous show when we found out that it was going to be published in a play, like you were off for whatever reason, like we both said that our excitement was ratcheted down a couple Mm -hmm. levels because it's not a a novel Um, for whatever reason. Uh, That's just the way it goes. Yeah, it's just like you're not getting that same experience that you've had a lot of love for in the past. I have, I do have like, you know, sort of snapshot memories of, I think Bob was out of town when either the sixth or the seventh book came out and it was a rainy weekend in Richmond. Uh And I just like curled up on the couch in the rain and read a whole Harry Potter book in a day and a half. And that's uh, like that readerly experience of picking up a big book and just sinking into it and reading the whole thing in a couple of days. It just feels really great. Have I told you my, uh, my story about reading the, la- the Deathly Hallows? I don't Have think I- so. I don't know if I've mentioned this. So I was in, uh, I was living in New York, but I was back in Kansas City for a bachelor party. Um, <laughs> and this is in, you know, 2007. So I was a much younger man at that point. Um, and could do younger man things. But anyway, um, so I got dropped off at the airport by my mom. No, no, by, yeah, by my mom after I hadn't slept for basically two days of drinking. And I, I pick up the Harry Potter book uh, at the airport bookstore, God Love the Hudson Booksellers, and I'm reading it. And I can't stop reading it, but I'm hungover and motion sick. Oh, and no. the whole time is me and like 
you're nervous about what's going to happen in the book. Like I almost barfed like 25 times <laughs> on the plane, but I, I couldn't stop. I was, it was like, it was the closest things to like needing a fix and like not being able to control yourself that I think I've ever come across. <laughs> very memorable. That is very memorable. Yeah. 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 I guess it's a vote of confidence for JK Rowling. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it certainly it certainly is something that I just didn't pass out. On, on hangover worthy reads. Hang, hangover <laughs> books you'll read even if you're miserably. Even if you should just go to bed already. Yeah. You know, right. 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 <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. I was trying to think about my first experience like that, and not hungover reading because I just give up and watch Netflix. But. Uh, yeah. um, that like sinking into a book and reading it all. And my, I'm, I'm sure I like read all night as a kid or came close to it with the whole, you know, like flashlight under the covers situation. But my first adult reading experience of like being up all night with a book was the Da Vinci Code, um, which I'm sure is part of my Dan Brown love today. But like we had visited my parents' very small hometown mm. in South Georgia and went to visit some high school friends of theirs. And one of them had just read it and was like, this book is so good. And she gave me Barbara Kingsolver's Prodigal Summer and The Da Vinci Code. And we flew home and I like started The Da Vinci Code on the plane and then got home. And I remember just like going to bed and <laughs> reading until 5 a.m. And like there's, you know, it's Dan Brown and your brain gets scrambled anyway. And then being like, I got an hour of sleep last night. <laughs> And Jesus might have been married to Mary Magdalene, and there were codes, and I don't know what's real. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, that one, I think most people who read that book just tore, just tear, yeah, just, just tear. So propulsive. I love I love Dan Brown. Um, uh, we're way off track here. Yeah, let's go back. Fun. The let's... other big book news is the Man Booker long list came out this week. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's fair to say it's the most prestigious literary prize uh in the English language for for an individual title. Is that fair to say? I think so, yeah. I don't know what even comes close. Um, the, comp the competitive field is bigger because it's global. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're not just looking at American. Well, it's not global, right? This is the, right, this is a, this is the, the English. Writing in English published yeah, in the UK. Yeah. Okay, so for, what am England I and its was, former colonies, basically, is what, what it is. What am I thinking? Was, am I thinking about like the Orange Prize? Maybe? Uh, whatever. The, the Bailey's Prize now is for women's yeah. fiction. Uh, or not women fiction by women. I, I know yeah. those are those are different things. Sorry for the the misspeaking there. Um, I don't know enough about. Is there the Man Booker International Prize? Is that one's given to an author for a body of work? I believe. I think uh, you're right. I have no idea which thing I was thinking of. There, there, there might be. It might one not for, exist. There might be one for for language for books written in languages other than English. But anyway, good listening. If it's not, if it's not the most prestigious it's in the it's one or two and it this one also is probably the biggest mover of books because these are books that get sold in a whole you know the australia canada india philippines the u.s uh england there's there's a lot of population that pays attention to this so can be very lucrative in that well in that way as well this is also the first year that the man booker has been open to americans um I guess they finally got over the Revolutionary War, uh, less to come in. Um, and there are and five Americans on five this list. Five Americans out of the 13, which seems like a lot. It does me. seem like a lot. Uh, I'm trying to, I'm looking at the list. There's a lot of books I don't know here, to be honest. It's an interesting list. The one, the, I've read one, I've read one of these. Can you believe that? 
Which one did you read? The Sellout. Okay, yeah. I've read one also. Um, but you, I've read Eileen by Otessa Moshvig. Did you like it? Not really. Not really. Okay. I like the, I like the Sellout. It's, it's satire. It's really good. Um, my name is Lucy Barton by Elizabeth Strout. I'm going to get mm-hmm. to at some point. I just, yeah, it's on my stack uh, too. Um, that book is also sold very well. Um, the other U.S. names are David Means for Histopia by Faber, from Faber and Faber, which I have to confess I haven't even heard of. Um, and Work Like Any Other by Virginia Reeves. Virginia Reeves. Which I've not heard of either. There's, in terms of big names, the biggest name on the list is uh, J.M. Kotze, the Nobel Prize winner for his book, The School Days of Jesus, which I am a big Kotze fan. I will read that in, in a great by and by. I haven't gotten to it yet. Um, and, and then after that, the biggest name is like A.L. Kennedy for Sirius Sweet or maybe Elizabeth Strout mm-hmm. for my name is Lucy Barton, at least from an American's point of, from this American's point of view. Um, there are, let's see, there's not, there's two from Canada. There's a bunch from the UK. Um, one, Kotze is a South African Australian, though he's white. Um, you know, so one thing I, I'm afeard has happened with the U.S. getting involved is it's making it even more of a, no, the Anglo, uh, you yeah, know, it's a, when, a, a white person's uh, award again. Sure. And uh, one of our contributors, Rebecca Hussey, wrote about this list for the site earlier this week and pointed out that the um, representation of people who are not white has decreased in, since yeah. last year. Um, the, the list is 16% people of color, I think, is how mm-hmm. it shakes out here. Um, and it was like 30% last year, 23 yeah. or 30%. I should have written them down. Um, but that was an observation that she made as well. And the U.S. being so heavily, uh, so heavily weighted towards honoring the work of white people, um, more, you know, we have more white people getting published. And so more white people's Mm -hmm. books are out there to be considered for prizes. I think that's a, it's a good hypothesis about what's going on here and maybe not a a great result for. Yeah. Two people of color, but Paul Beatty from the U S is one of them. So, I mean, it's, 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 it is what it is. The sellout's Um, been one of those, like it was sort of a sleeper hit last year. I feel like people have been talking about the sellout as a sleeper hit for two years. I'm surprised it's even eligible. I feel like it's been out a million years, but I, (laughs) I don't know what the I don't know what the the eligibility window is. Yeah, maybe it came out in early 2015. I feel I like it remember. came out like 1976. <laughs> people have been talking about it for. And don't get me wrong, I like the book. It just feels and and I started hearing it before publication, so that's right. another thing that happens in our world now. Is like we can hear about a book, people are excited about it seven months before it's published, mm-hmm. um, right, so, or more. Yeah. Yeah, and then it could come out. I mean, this could be UK release. Right, so this oh, could be. True. It came out in the UK. So who knows? Um, at, at any rate, it's a. Uh, it's that's the list. Um, if you're if you're into books that you haven't heard of yet, it seems like a pretty good mm-hmm. year for that. Um, anything else to say about that? I'm afraid I don't have much else. Yeah, I don't have much else uh, to say about it. Smart either. to say about it. I just requested the sellout from the library because I <laughs> had been thinking about it forever, but this was like the nudge that I needed. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking forward to reading that one. I've heard nothing but good things. Yep. Um, uh, you want to hear about our next sponsor? Yeah, I'm trying to. Th- I was to say, should we do a sponsor? 
answer. That's the, the, the thing we should do next. Yeah, and then we'll roll on because we've got a set of like three stories that kind of go together. Um, every library is back this week. We've talked about them a few times before, and I've been talking for the last month or so about my renewed love affair with my local library. So this is just perfect timing. Uh, also, we got to see uh, Carla Hayden be confirmed as the Librarian of Congress, and everylibrary.org played a role in getting those hearings and supporting her nomination. Uh, if you don't know what Every Library is, it is a website that exists to provide information and then actionable stuff um, around public libraries because there are organizations that are trying to defund and eliminate public libraries in the U.S. Um, if you want to see examples of some of the groups that are trying to do those things, you can go to action.everylibrary.org slash support local. Um, you can also check out what every library is doing to fight for libraries. You can see ways that you can sign up to support your local library. You can make contributions to help every library fight for U.S. libraries. You can sign petitions. There is so much information to be found at mm -hmm. everylibrary.org. Um, so many things to get up in arms, very rightfully so, about um, to be outraged and to want to support your uh, public libraries. We've talked, I, th I feel like we've, we talk about it all the time, but we've still just barely scratched the surface of what's going on in public libraries in the U.S. and Oh, man. You know, all of the services that they provide, but all of the ways that they come under fire as well. Um, for trying to serve their communities in as broad and inclusive ways possible and all of the, you know, politics that get tangled up in that. Um, very recently, I've been reading about um, librarians that are supporting Black Lives Matter and the distinction between libraries as a bipartisan place, but not a neutral space. Um, everylibrary.org has really interesting information about all of these issues and so much more. Find out what's going on in your community. Find out where your tax dollars are going in your local libraries, how else you can get involved. Again, go to action.everylibrary.org for more information. You can check out action.everylibrary.org slash support local for the actions that you can take and the causes that you can uh, donate to support in your own local communities as well. Um, so mm. just a really cool, this is one of the, I think the coolest services, community organiz organizations that we've had sponsor the show. I'm really happy to continue having opportunities to talk about them. Again, it's action.everylibrary.org. Thanks so much for them to sponsoring the show. Um, big, big report um, from Fireside Fiction, um, which is a, uh, I don't know if they have a print magazine or not, but they're a, at the very least an active um, online, I guess, journal magazine. Yeah, uh, you know, sci -fi they do some books on sci-fi uh, sci and science fiction. Yeah, literary fantasy. journal. Yeah, it, it's an interesting exercise in what does it mean to be sort of a journal magazine publisher these days? Like what is it necessarily? But, um, they did a, they did a special issue on, um, blackness in speculative fiction. Um, and uh, there's a whole, the NK, there's an interview with NK Jemison. There's a really good essay from one of our own, uh, contributors, uh, Justina, um, over there, um, but for the thing that probably is the most book right podcasty thing to talk about is they did a study of it's not really a study it's a survey of the number of stories by black people that appeared in science fiction and speculative fiction magazines over the last year like just what what's what's the state of you know kind of a vita for yeah. black people in science fiction and fantasy collected and magazines. some data did some counting yeah, and and did some 
stats. They mm-hmm. did some binomial analysis, and the the upshot is one point nine percent of the stories that appeared in the magazines they surveyed were by black people. Yeah, and not a small sample size. It was no. 2,039 original stories from 63 magazines. Mm-hmm. And that 1.9% is 38 stories that um, that they found were written by black authors. Yeah, and they, they acknowledge that they have, to, you know, incomplete information. They may have, there could be some false positives, there could be some false negatives, but if you sort of assume it evens out, you know, take it for what it's worth. Um, you know, and they say, you know, okay, so what are we comparing this to? This is something that I try to think about in my mind. Like what, what would be a normal sampling? Let's say that black authors should be represented according to the number of people that live in the U S right. Which is, they say 13.2% of Americans were, um, in 2015 identified as black. So under this assumption, they say the probability of the 1.9% average occurring by random chance is approximately 3.12 3.12 times 10 to the negative 76th power. Uh, so that it's, it's a number so small that it, like it's not even worth talking you about. You have like 20 times, you're 20 times more likely to win the New Jersey lottery. <laughs> you're, you're more likely to win the New Jersey pick six lottery like three times in a row yeah. than to get this through random and, chance. And just to do the hard numbers, to get that 13.2% representation out of this yes. sample size of just over 2000, you would need like 270 stories um, to be right. by black authors uh, as uh, opposed to the 38 stories that they actually found. And, and they say, you know, so, but what they don't know, what they don't have access to is the sample, the samples, the, the data set they don't have access to is the percent, the percentage of submissions that are by black authors. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, let's, let's think that, let's say for whatever reason that black authors are only submitting that much, that they're getting published at about the same rate as other groups. Um, it's just that the submission rate for black authors is down for a variety of reasons we've talked about on the show before, and there's, there's a million of them. But they say even under this, the most charitable assumption to whiteness possible, <laughs> some of the magazines still have a very unlikely proportion of black authors represented. Mm-hmm. So like people going 0 for 150 right. stories. Um, I think it's worth talking about. I think uh, I think it's good on them to do and to put some resources behind. I'm glad they did this. I, I'm not sure I know enough about the science fiction world to be able to speak intelligently on causes or, or suggest remedies or anything like that. Um, but it's out there. And this is the kind of thing that taking a hard look at who's actually getting published where is the kind of thing is sort of initial step to people doing a better job, mm-hmm. right? Like this is something that Vita says and we've seen the people who have ears to listen will do better. Yeah, there's this feels like one more, I guess, tentacle of yep. telling the story about what goes on with systemic and unconscious racism in publishing and one more area to shine a light on so that it can start to change. There's a long history of um, of racism in science fiction and fantasy. Um, Troy Wiggins, who's one of our contributors, has written about this for Book Riot and for panels um, about um, blackness in speculative fiction and in sci-fi fantasy and what goes into stories about black characters, but also the experiences that black writers have. And earlier, was it earlier this year or last year, we talked about um, the Hugo, oh, not the Hugo Awards, the um, Lovecraft, right? The Lovecraft Award yes, getting yeah, renamed yeah. because finally uh, organizations have acknowledged his 
long known racism and decided uh, not to make an award named after him anymore. So the sci-fi fantasy world is turning really to fight for this as well, or we're starting to see more of it. Um, But yeah, I think just one more piece of the puzzle that we need to pay attention to. If you are interested, we'll have a link uh, to the study that they did in the show notes. And there's also information about how you can support Fireside Fiction in doing this work. They have a Patreon and a PayPal. Um, It costs them money to produce this. And if you want to support uh, their work, there are other ways that you can do that too. So um, continuing the vein of, you know, talking about representation some, we found out last week that um, this was Friday, like, you know, summer Fridays, you're not supposed to drop big news, but this was big news. Yeah. Um, Roxanne Gay is going to write a new Black Panther series called World of Wakanda um, for Marvel Comics. Um, she is going, it's sort of a companion series to the ta Coates Black Panther uh, run that is going right now and that's a big deal not just because Roxanne Gay and Marvel Comics but because here in 2016 she is the first black woman to write a comic for Marvel Mm -hmm. Uh, really interesting story for a lot of reasons Um, and apparently the way it worked is Coates read a short story that Roxanne um, had written and recommended her to Marvel and the reason I bring that up is we know that this is how things happen. Mm-hmm. And so one thing that helps representation is are these informal networks of influence, right? Someone has someone access to somebody and they recommend somebody. And I think it's interesting that he told that story um, and that that's how the thing happened. Marvel didn't know about her. They, they, they you know, presumably, according to the story he tells, but since he had an in by writing Black Panther and having a best-selling book and being a comics fan, that he then had the leverage to recommend someone. Um, and so the more people you get in positions to do that, the more likely it is you're going to have better representation. So that, I thought that was an under – not underappreciated, but a interesting – sub story mm-hmm. to the larger stories. Like how did this happen? Right. Like it, it should not have taken until 2016 to have a black woman writing yeah. a comic for Marvel. And then the fact that it's a very, that it had to be a very well recognized yep. black writer who got it, got her foot in the door by way of these private networks of influence through another well-known black writer. Um, Like this is not how it should have to play out. Um, And well, it doesn't, but I think that's, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is that's what, how it plays out even amongst, you know, sort of predominantly white publishing of the 1970s is who did you know? Mm -hmm. And who did you have a, a network connection to? And so I think in one, one of the great, I don't know if it's a mystery or not, but one of the great, I guess, absences is having enough people in the positions that can make those recommendations and utilize those networks. You know, I, uh, I don't know that there's a way for it to happen without those networks. So what you need is people that could recommend people in their, you, you know, in their communities for the gigs, like get them in the door. You need yeah, someone and- there. And Roxanne Gay pointed out, I think it was on Twitter where I saw her saying this, that the other writers that she'll have on the series and the artists are also black yep. women. So mm-hmm. she's doing that, you know, sort of paying it forward, opening of the door to other people right. who right. Um, have not yet and likely would not have had the opportunity to do this kind of work on a big comic for one of the major comics publishers without these networks as well. Um 
but it's I, I kind of I can't get over like I'm sure that Roxane Gay is not the first black woman who's qualified to write well I'm, uh, a Marvel I, comic I, um, heard, and that it I, took someone of that stature for Marvel to be like oh right we should do this yeah I I I saw some people talking about it on Twitter and 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 these are people that are still thrilled that it's happening but some are saying you know it's not like there aren't black women out there writing comics mm-hmm. you know and so. I, I don't know. There, there's still a pipeline problem. Like, there's still a way in which, I mean, does it? It counts, but it's a little. It's it's a it's sign of a larger issue that it has to happen this way, right? There's not right. A, a. She was assistant editor, you know, in writing the third scribe for Spawn, and then got promoted to X, then to Y, then to she got her own title, right? Like, that's another way it happens in comics too. So. That's another part of the story that's very difficult to sort of square the circle that it it can't just be all – the ecosystem needs to be richer Mm -hmm. for for black people in comics and black women in comics and um, diverse – you know, underrepresented authors of all kinds to be frank. Um, But but it's a big story. Black Panther, I think maybe we talked about on the show or not, is the best-selling comic of the year. Mm -hmm. It's sold – it's selling out 250,000 – print copies and more per issue, which is a huge number for single issues. Um, it's an enormous story. Um, I'm waiting for it to come out in trade, though I'm barely able to. I'm barely able to contain um, my interest in what's going on there. Coates seems to be very into it. I don't know how long he's going to do it. Um, I don't know if he has a contract or whatever. I'll be curious to see if it's like Josh Whedon with Astonishing X-Men where he did, I think, one run. And then hand it over to somebody else. Um, but I, I think it's a super interesting uh, development. So have you, have you ever read a Black Panther comic? I haven't. I've sort of yeah. fallen off my comics wagon oh, in the you? last like six months with trying to keep up with reading for all the books. Yeah. But yep. I have this plan to like read a bunch of trades over the holidays <laughs> and get caught back up. And Black Panther is on my list. Um, if you are wanting to be able to put Roxane Gay's World of Wakanda on your poll list, she tweeted that they anticipate it will come out in November. Um, comic scheduling being what it is, that's kind of anybody's guess. Um, yeah. But that's the tentative plan now is for it to be released in November so you can have your uh, local comics shop start to look for that mm-hmm. um, let's see what else we want to do anything else hmm. you know I think this is just a random kind of funny yep. story um, from Publishers Weekly this week that publishers are well first of all the headline is dope reads which come on um, and it's then, almost like you have to write this article once you came up with it. Hey, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's dope reads. Publishers have high hopes for marijuana books. Like someone was working overtime at the pun machine that day. And then the first line of the piece is where there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, but I guess, you know, because we're in election season and because uh, marijuana use has been decriminalized in many states and the work for that is continuing, publishers are doing a bunch of weed-themed books. Mm-hmm. There is the Idiot's Guide to Growing Marijuana. Uh, Jesse Ventura has written a marijuana manifesto. Uh, There's the 420 Gourmet, which is about edibles, the elevated art of cannabis cuisine, and a whole bunch. How to Smoke Pot Properly is a book by Plume um, that someone sent me a galley (laughs) of. (laughs) 
figures. Yeah, by uh, David. <laughs> That's perfect. Uh, David Bienenstock, he's a contributor to Vice and head of content at High Times, which, like, that's an office mm-hmm. <laughs> that you've got to wonder about. Um, but Kate Napolitano, who's a senior editor at Plume, acquired that book in part because she saw a gap in the market. Like, there's clearly, you know, sort of cult- many cultures actually around marijuana use. And now yeah. that uh, it's becoming decriminalized, some of the stigma around, you know, discussing that publicly has uh, worn away as well. So publishers are that this is like the next publishing bandwagon is books about weed. Um, and I'm just kind of delighted and amused by it. Like, d- <laughs> it, is, it is funny. I, uh, uh, Clint was in town uh, on mm-hmm. vacation. We were talking a little bit and we're at the beach at a, at a river here in Portland. And that's one thing that happens is people are smoking marijuana. I was just saying, you know, I'm just never going to get used to that people smoke it because it's still to me, the smell of illicit behavior in high school, right? Like, like that three eleven like concert, petty crime, you know. <laughs> um, but I think one thing that's happening is like as it becomes part of mainstream American culture, it's sort of being de, I don't know, uh, de cultified. You know, like, yeah, when it was illegal, it's like you were like you smoked dope and it became part of your identity, or it didn't, or it wasn't sort of. Mm-hmm. And now it's just because of something that people do, and I. I wonder if there is going to be, I guess this is a long way of saying, I wonder if there's going to be a market for these books. Like, yeah, are there I, people really going to read books about weed at this point? Well, or just, just, I don't know. Like they if, don't read books about cigarettes. That's weird. If you have not previously used weed, like, is is the fact that it's magically, I don't know how, like, I guess they're counting, like, you know, people who grow weed are counting on, like, decriminalization increasing their potential market like people who want to use it aren't using it because they don't want to get in trouble with the law but like are you gonna buy a book about how to grow like the idiot's guide to growing marijuana really like are are you going to do that or it's such a social thing i think that like you're gonna talk to your friend but it is interesting that i think people's identities are less attached to this particular you know is a it's a habit i was like an interest a hobby but it's a like it's a habit that has some cultural stuff around it then then when it was stigmatized and a thing that accompanied illicit behavior like i was i get a newsletter from a popular feminist writer and she mentioned in in one a couple of months ago like flying out of a state in which marijuana had been had been decriminalized like eating my weed gummy before a takeoff and it was like okay this is the future right this like, is the future yeah and i just, guess maybe there is i mean now that i'm thinking about it a little bit more i guess there is a ongoing appetite for books about say alcohol right. cocktails booze craft brewing I, I guess if it becomes that ingrained and that normalized there will be sure a market it just seems i guess i was thinking more like cigarettes or tobacco like there's not you know like a bunch of books about tobacco. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. I think there are like certain vices, for lack of a better word, do right. get uh, sort of how-to cultures yeah. built around them, and um, drinking is certainly one of those. Like, I, there are definitely like whiskey cocktail books in my kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess probably yeah, there will be like edibles, cookbooks, and it'll it might take some poking at like what the market really is to figure out the way that you sell books about weed to people but i was just delighted that this was like yes. a thing that came across my dashboard this week of like of all of the fads i guess that publishing attempts to make money um jesse ventura's marijuana manifesto <laughs> does make a certain i mean she's right right that there is now this 
gap in the market yeah. for something that's now a legal activity that a lot of people mm-hmm. engage in. Yeah. And so then publishing books about it makes sense. It, the question is, and no one really knows, like, how, what will marijuana's life as part of legal American culture be? Mm-hmm. Will it be more like drinking or will it be more like cigarettes? Yeah, we you don't know. know yeah. or, or tobacco, which is not glamorized, it's not fetishized, it's not like, you know, uh, there were a lot of um, cocktail madman inspiration things. I don't think there were a lot of like, here's how to smoke a lucky strike articles mm-hmm. floating right. around on the internet. Like, it just it just became alcohol has a different has a different place in America's life. It'll be interesting to see if marijuana does become or becomes like a third kind of object. Like I don't really have a good sense of it. Again, I'm too stigmatized. I'm too old. I'm mm-hmm. too used to the old ways of thinking about marijuana to be part of the future. I think in any real way of imagining it, but it seems very likely to me that it'll have its place. Like there are weed shops all over Oregon, uh, and it's just sort of the thing. Yeah, I, Remarkably you know, unremarkable, I yeah, guess. I'm going to put my money on weed goes closer to what alcohol is like in culture. I think so. Yeah. Especially as edibles. There's like, the paraphernalia and edibles. Right. Like the smoking of it carries the health, you know, all the health stuff that the anti-smoking for cigarettes ads comes with. But that's not the only way to consume marijuana. And you can, yeah, I think it's going to go closer to like what drinking culture is um but that's that's just my guess last year a year or two ago there was a book like it was a snoop dog book where the pages were rolling papers and you could tear them out um and i think we're gonna go through like a phase of sort of cheesy kitschy attempts before we really land on like weed lifestyle books that people actually want but i'm i'm just generally delighted the the move is going to be a holdover from stoner culture yeah right but like Please bring me all of your punny headlines about dope reads. I am here for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a le- that's one of the many um, uh, uh, great outcomes of marijuana being legal. Is the the pun industry is has so many <laughs> just because there's such a rich taxonomy of words for weed and smoking it's and true. Mar- it's just a it's an amazing it's an amazingly rich linguistic. Mm-hmm. Field, Snoop so. Dogg's new lifestyle website, <laughs> yes, is called Mary exactly. Jane, but it's M E R R Y, like you know Mary. <laughs> Snoop, you couldn't have done better than that. Puns. You, you had all the money. You could had all the money for for to get whatever URL you wanted. You had to go with that. Look, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I, okay. You know what? I think that means our shows are. I think we're going to end Dogg's on a up. high I'm, note. Say, oh, geez, Louise. I'm really. Oh, I'm oh. sorry. <laughs> sorry. I think I just collapsed one of my lungs. Uh, you can listen to this. You can check out the show notes for this and all back episodes of the Book Riot podcast, bookriot.com slash listen. You can navigate to the show here. Also, check out other shows. Um, you can go the, the, the VIP perks yes. for Book Riot Live uh, end August 31st. Um, go to bookriotlive.com, use offer code wheelhouse, all one word. Get 20 bucks off your ticket. Remind me of the other VIP perks again real quick. You get um, early access to special events that have limited space or seating in them. What was that? Oh, sorry. Nothing. (laughs) Okay. Um, You get special access to um, any – or early access, sorry. 
Let's try this again. Uh, VIP perks include early access, first shot at special events that have limited seating or space in them, and also early RSVP access to like panels with our headline speakers that everyone will want to see, but that will only have a certain number of seats for. I believe there are a few other perks that I cannot remember at this moment. Yeah, you uh, so, can find it at bookwritelive.com. Yeah, bookwritelive.com. Offer code is wheelhouse. Thanks to every library.org sponsoring the show. Go check them out. And Mod's line, but Margaret Verbal, I really recommend it. Thank you so much for them sponsoring the show. We'll talk to you guys next week. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.